Well, welcome to our Beef Educators podcast series. Today we're talking drought again. We thought it would be a good idea given some of our recent podcasts to visit with some of the managers from um, our public land management agencies, the Forest Service and the BLM, um, and get an idea from them as to how they look at drought and some of the management um, considerations they make as they, they approach drought. Uh, in these in the years like we're experiencing now so today we'll start with Alan Bass who is the state range lead for the BLM. Alan if you want to take a second introduce yourself real quick then we'll go ahead and get started. Sure um, and, and maybe just to qualify I, I don't manage anybody. <clears throat> I'm, I'm quite proud to be able to say that and, and be at the grade I am. Uh, <laughs> Uh, don't take that the wrong way, but uh, I, yeah, I don't uh, officially tell anybody what to do, but I try to advise and give uh, recommendations and, and so forth. So uh, again, yeah, my name is Alan Bass, um, the range program lead here at the state office, BLM Utah. Um, I've been here about well, almost going on 10 years. Um, I started my BLM career uh, out in the West Desert uh, District, the Salt Lake Field Office. Um, Matter of fact, uh, Brent Tanner, who's on, is was one of my first permittees, his family's ranch. So hopefully I, I don't say something that he scratches his head and say, wait a minute, that's not what he did when he was there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it might be that way. So you're a survivor, Alan. You're a survivor. <laughs> that's the goal sometimes. Um, so, yeah, uh, born and raised here in Utah from Ogden. Uh, have a. Uh, five kids and living the dream. It's important to point out that he's a USU alum. So that's always good to have USU alums on the call. Hey, um, so Alan, I think a good place to start is, you know, there's, I think as producers interact with agencies a lot, they see a lot of variability from office to office. And so can you kind of give an idea of, of why that might be even in terms of the response to drought? Yeah. Uh, and I, th- my opinion is that's a good thing um, to some extent. You know, we, there is, uh, I think the most recent is a 2013 instruction memorandum. Uh, stop me if I use a lot of acronyms. Um, I am instruction memorandum about uh, drought management. Um, several states, including Utah, followed that up the same year um, with a, a instruction memorandum, kind of giving some overarching guidance and sideboards, if you will, recommendations on, you know, pre-season assessment of drought conditions. And then as we get into that uh, timing of the drought and as it correlates to their grazing season, there's kind of a pre, mid and post grazing season and assessment analysis, if you will, of conditions and some data and whatever else. Um, But from my level, you know, at a state office level to to put really rigid or, specific metrics, in my opinion, would be somewhat in error because of the variability. I mean, you, you've all been across the state of Utah. There's just not one one scenario that we could prescribe that would address all of the concerns. There's not one uh, ranch that operates the same. There's not one allotment that has the same, you know, resistant, resilient component to it that the next one does. Um, you know, Southern Utah, Southern Utah gets monsoonal weathers that Northern Utah typically doesn't get. And so how do we factor that in? So 
you know, from, from my level, we try to give some, some general overarching um, concepts to consider. And then we do encourage uh, local offices to engage e even to the allotment by allotment level of, of decision-making and, and what's going on in concert with everything else, which is you know, sometimes a challenge to track. Yeah, I, I just, I think that's an important point to point out to start with, because I know there's a lot, sometimes there's confusion as to why things vary from office to office. And I, I think that's a wise approach to give flexibility. So to start out with Alan, how does the BLM decide when a drought's occurring and that there may be needs to be some action on the ground or some changes in the, you know, in the coming years grazing? When, when do those decisions typically get made? Kind of give us some insight into how that process happens. Well, well, I'm hoping you're not looking for some great, like, scientific answers. The bottom line is we watch the weather like you do, <laughs> right? We we tap into the resources that are available. We do, uh, you know, drought monitors and those kind of things. Um, conversations with the permittees. They know as well as anybody um, because they're living out there that, hey, we didn't get much. Or, yeah, it snowed. I mean, it don't want to pick on Brent, but my experience in Grouse Creek was great. We got lots of snow in northern Utah, but that didn't matter much, right? We needed spring rains to put on the ground. That's what was going to help us trigger. So I didn't really get excited as the local range con to the snowpack in, in West Box Elder because I've been out there and, and it blows it off and it lands in East Box Elder or somewhere else. Um, but yeah, so, you know, those resources that are available, NRCS has tools. Um, and then as we proceed into that, like you said, I mean, there's this uh, instruction memorandum that has an attachment that, that kind of walks through some, some recommendations, uh, local ROS data, um, soil moisture information. And again, that, that's hard because we're, we're trying to take that from a, a large scale, you know, Westwide or statewide or regionwide, and and articulate that to an allotment uh, or a group of allotments. Um, but as we walk through that, we are uh, encouraging offices to engage. Um, a lot of times, that's through a letter uh, to permittees, and typically that letter is one of, "Hey, let's come in, uh, sit down, and talk about what's going on. What are you seeing?" Uh, what what do you think your operation can do? Um, this is what we're seeing. Uh, this is the, the kind of condition of those uh, resources. Um, and not just forage wise, right? Riparian wise, um, part of our uh, direction is, is looking at um, additional resources that are out there. If we're in a, uh, there's teeny habitat or something else, other stressors that uh, other, other factors are gonna be stressed by that uh, oncoming drought does management need to take a different approach than if it's just a matter of uh, a lack of forage per se? I mean, uh, uh, not to bring up something you probably want to stay away from it. Uh, I guess I should refer to as Dr. Thacker. Doesn't really roll off my tongue, sorry. No, you're um, fine. <laughs> Eric's just fine. But, but uh, you know, the consideration wild horses, um, you know, we, we haul water to them. And so we, we try to have those kind of metrics in place for livestock as well. Can we do some temporary water hauling? But we, we want to reach out early, um, long before we get into that drought. So the line officer and each field office can have that opportunity to consult with their range con and the permittees to say, what are our options? What, what can we start planning for? 
because a lot of times as we get into it, part of our direction is we go out and monitor, right? But monitoring only tells us if what we did worked. And, and especially in a scenario like this, when we're two, three, four years into it, um, that's a little late to, to see if it worked. I mean, that, that's what we have. And we use that to kind of educate the next cycle of what happened. But um, that's our goal is to have that early and frequent kind of coordination. Um, and in addition to that, uh, part of the direction is to reach out to other resources, right? My job is as a land manager for public lands is to manage those resources, all of the resources that are there. And so I'm a I'm a rangeland management specialist is my job description, but I, I am on an interdisciplinary team in a field office to, to look at all those resources. And so we, we can tap, you know, Department of Agriculture, uh, the Cattlemen's Association, the Wool Growers, the Farm Bureau, uh, NRCS um, to help us focus uh, and look at other options, you know, what, what kind of drought relief or insurance or other options that we can, you know, those aren't our expertise necessarily, um, but we can provide a connection to those resources. And again, those permittees know how to get to those. Then we can sort of get a big picture about what we can do because, you know, uh, not that our instruction memorandum is like sequential in priority, but our number two, you know, states consider the potential impacts of drought management actions on the public land users. And that's a challenge sometimes because, you know, again, my job at the end of the day is to make sure the resources are there for current and future generations, right? But discussion with a permittee that they might have to take two or three years uh, non-use means, you know, somebody going to college isn't going to get textbooks or, so, you know, there's other impacts to that that, that we try to balance in, in consideration with that. So early and often coordination um, to see where we can go and what we can do is, is our best approach. And then I think like the rest of us, we, we do our best to kind of look at our crystal ball and say, the trends tell us and our history tells us this is where we're going. This is what we, we think we need to do in, in reduction. And, and that's hard, right? What, what, is, what does a D2 severe drought mean? Is that a 50% reduction or is that a 70? You know, how do you pick that number? But that's something we just kind of work through and discuss with our, our permittees and other local resources. So, Alan, would would you say that, I guess, in, especially in this drought situation that we've been going into for two, three years now, you know, would you say that it, it's, it's pretty vital that the permittees are in consistent communication with their field offices and their range cons just to, so they could be kind of proactive in planning out what might be on the horizon for them or might be more aware of what might be coming up on the horizon for them. And do you see that? Do you see that constant interaction? Um, yeah, for the most part, you know, there's always some that, that um, don't engage as much as others. And I, and the ones that are more proactive, I think uh, my experience is the ones that usually end up in a better situation because they're the ones that reach out to folks like Brent Tanner and, and, and other resources to get that, advantage, if you will, to, to plan their operations down the road. And, and especially like, like this scenario we're in, you know, so next year we have 120% of snowpack. That doesn't, from my perspective, mean that we're out of the woods. And so we need to help articulate to them that, you know, we're, we're still a little concerned. We want to give those herbaceous um, uh, 
plant communities a time to regenerate and, and refill their, you know, reserves in their roots and, and help them understand that so they can plan well. Okay, so if we if we on paper break out of this drought, we still might be in a in a longer pattern of running at seventy five percent or eighty percent or or less time on the allotment or you know whatever we plan to switch out because you know you just you don't buy and sell cattle at a at a drop of a hat and and that's just not the way that works and so yeah I, the ones that do reach out typically have a, a I hate to say better success because that's different defined by everybody. Um, they 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 lose typically on, on the back end, but hopefully in the long term they they come out okay and can recover from that. So I think one of the challenges, Alan, is is I've kind of dealt with this, you know, especially it seems like the last couple of years where we've had some good droughts, especially in central and southern Utah is, you know, you have to make some decisions early in the year before you really know what the full outcome of the spring is. And I think that's the, the hardest part and, and trying to remain flexible during that time, um, I, I think can, can be a real challenge. Um, it, if we can go back a little bit, Kendall, I want to talk about some of the other rangeland uses that, that have to be considered and then, and then some water hauling. So what does that process look like as you consider those other process or other uses um, everything from recreation, you know, we talked about wild horses, sage grouse, you know, wildlife habitat. Um, is that done in consultation with that resource team that you mentioned or how is the range console responsible to kind of make that call? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say they're solely responsible. I mean, again, that's where, you know, we, we try to work as an ID team and bring in those individual specialists that can help provide that context of what that resource needs in light of a drought and, and what the impact might be. Um, is is a rangeland management specialist our our role in wearing that hat is to bring the needs of the producer to that table as well and and help the folks understand, you know, how and 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 when and what livestock grazing can can do in in light of a drought consideration. So yeah, I mean if we're you know in the middle of uh, you know, wilderness study areas or ACECs, um, teeny habitat, uh, threatened and endangered species habitat, um, sage grouse, wild horses. And, and as you all know, as you add those resources, the complexity of it just gets uh, bigger and bigger, which makes it harder and harder for kind of a line officer to, to, to thread that needle and make that decision again on this principle of forecasting where we're gonna go with this. Um, one of the, you know, challenges I'm, I'm sympathetic to and understand, and, and yet sort of we're, we're still, you know, our regulations do speak to a, a providing for the ability for us to take these actions is grazing is the one thing we really have control on management wise. Um, we just don't run out and, and scoop up a bunch of horses. And that's tough when we, we call permittees and think the best solution is to run 50%. And you know, part of our, our direction in this instruction memorandum is to consult with Division of Wildlife Resources. And we've seen them in the past. We don't get involved in hunting regulations, but I, I know from a personal standpoint, they've increased cow elk tags, um, you know, in your neck of the woods, uh, Eric, you uh, in a basin on the, on the UNAs for because of drought and, and the, the capacity of that range not to be able to support that. So we appreciate that for sure is, is a recognition by all that everything's got to take a step back. Um, 
but from the BLM standpoint, the grazing is the one of the things we can we can get our hands around and manage and make some adjustments. Um, and sometimes that that perception is good and bad from the permittee because they feel like they're the only ones being required to address address drought impact. Uh, and you know, we we can't go out and tell the antelope not to, you know, don't have any fawns this year. You know, we 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 can't do that, but. Um, we we encourage all disciplines to kind of reach out and, and, and touch base with their counterparts and ask what can we do collectively in this range um, to make sure you know future populations and, and future uh, uses of this landscape can can stay out there five ten years from now when we when we get out of this cycle. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to try to open a can of worms with that, but I know that's that's. Uh it's often a difficult balancing act, um, you know, especially when you have a lot of large ungulates on a landscape like bison. Um, that's about all I have to say, uh, you know, where permit tees may not even be able to use part of the range during a drought year because of use by wildlife. Although that's relatively rare, that's a, that's a pretty dramatic impact. And often the one that the BLM doesn't have a lot of control with, so. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of, of water, um, are there any sort of regulations around hauling water? Because I know a lot of, of ranchers right now are gearing up to haul water um, onto their permits, you know, because drought has, you know, and you've alluded to this, there's two things that happen with drought. Number one is water sources may become limited or stop, and then there's less forage. And so the one we can mitigate by hauling water is, is how does the BLM interface there? Do they have, is there any regulation around that or do you just allow permittees to do what they see? Yeah, so is we, that we, something they need to coordinate with the BLM? How does that? Yeah, for sure. Um, <coughs> as, as we do these, you know, permit renewals, as we, you know, uh, renew them over 10 year cycles, we, we encourage offices to, to build in more flexibility as much as we possibly can. Um, to allow for these opportunities. Um, uh, there is, uh, you know, options for emergency uh, water halls and those kind of things. We like that coordination because we want to make sure, um, you know, they don't go drop a, a trough in the middle of a, a teeny cactus habitat or something like that. So we want to make sure that those things are, are accounted for and that we're, you know, considering all of the resources there. But um, there are, you know, options for emergency use, uh, just like there's options for emergency feeding um, under certain criteria. So yeah, we, we want them to come in and if that's an option, um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, if it's a, a, a matter of filling up storage tanks um, or those kind of things, and then they're completely within their terms and conditions on a permit to, to do that. But if they're gonna, you know, wanna add some additional locations or something like that, yeah, a phone call to the, to the office to say, what, what are our options here? What can we do? Um, and, and hopefully we're able to just to give the green light and say, yeah, let's go out and do that. Um, and again, I, I know a lot of permits are trying to have those conversations because drought is just every year more and more of a consideration. Um, you know, the, the natural range of variability in the drought just is, is getting bigger in my mind. And so we want to have that accounted for and, and looked at that, you know, over the past, you know, 15 years, we've hauled water in, in these situations. So we're just going to make sure there's no dispute and we're going to we're going to put that in the permit as part of the terms and conditions that if we meet these criteria they don't even have to really call us we've already looked at it they can go out and haul that 
And so if they if they've communicated with that office, say, hey, these are the places that are going to be best for me, and this is what's going to work, and then we can kind of balance those resources and say, yeah, let's let's identify these half a dozen locations and and get them taken care of. So, are you suggesting the best time to have that conversation is before the drought occurs, Alan? Yes, of course, and. It, with that, you know, if, if, if they're renewing their grazing permit where we're going to do some uh, environmental analysis, that's a really good time to bring up from a permittee is, is what do we see in the next 10 years? What have we seen in the past 10 years? And what have we needed to do differently that, you know, um, that existing terms and conditions really haven't allowed us to do? And, and we're, you know, the, the outcome-based grazing authorizations um, that the Bureau's trying to work on is trying to, to crack that egg, if you will, and, and not get locked into these black and white kind of um, pen on paper, I hate to use the word restrictions, but but uh, constraints or, or conditions of their permit. And we want to try to broaden that, broaden that and give that flexibility to say, when this situation arises, if we wait for three years or two years to do NEPA to decide that they can water haul everywhere, the damage is going to be done. It's, it's pointless to, to do that effort. And, and sometimes we do have to walk down that decision road, but if we can get ahead of that, um, and even if it's not your permit renewal, come in now, if, if you're just on your range and it's drought after drought, it's like, Hey, can we, do I have that flexibility now? Or if I don't, can we get that on the books to get going? So when this comes, um, you know, right now is a hard time for that, but it's going to come again. I think we're going to rebound as we usually do, but it's going to come again. Let's make sure I have that flexibility to make adjustments. Um, and that's, that's more than just water hauling. That's changing numbers and maybe seasons of use um, in light of those, those needs of those resources. And so you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you may haul, water in emergency situations for horses, but you're not going to haul, the BLM doesn't fund or haul water for livestock at all. That's completely on the response. That's a responsibility to permit T. Is that correct? That's, that's my understanding. Yeah. Okay. Um, so as we move forward um, with this a little bit, Alan, what, what kind of options, and I know each office is different, but if you could kind of give us a, um, kind of like a laundry list of options that that are considered as part of a grazing mitigation plan. Um, again, I, I think if I've heard you right, you've encouraged the producers to talk about this with the range con before they get into a drought, but what are kind of the range of options that are available in terms of how a producer may and the range con may mitigate the impacts of drought moving forward? Wow, um, that's a potentially loaded question there. Um, <laughs> well, and I understand it varies. Again, I understand it varies from office to office, but if you can just kind of give us a. Yeah, kind of a, and, and I'm probably not going to get to the detail maybe you'd like, because again, I'll, I'll come back to my very first caveat that I don't manage anybody. That means I can't tell an office what, what that line officer, sure. that, that field manager is going to decide. And it really will be case by case. Um, in as much flexibility as we're able to provide. Again, I don't know every permit that's out there and a lot of them have allotment management plans to discuss flexibility. And so, you know, when a line officer calls and says, what can we do here? I'll ask those questions. Do you have some NEPA? Do you have some analysis? What's been considered? Do you have an AMP? And when we can flesh that information out, um, that those mitigation steps, um, 
may be different for each each permit, depending on what that analysis sure. was, what that terms and conditions um, provided for. Um, but again, you know, the regulations speak to doing things within terms and conditions of, uh, of their permit. And so if, if they want to run, you know, um, same number of head, they want to go a little bit um, more during that season of use or uh, their reduction, they, they take half as many numbers and they, they want to turn them out four weeks later. All those are typically authorized, you know, without much to do. Um, other mitigation would be if, if there's water hauling, if that's going to be the resource that's limiting, um, you know, perhaps we have a resilient landscape that was in a condition that had some residual forage and we think we're okay that way, but we're going to dry up springs and, and those feeding water lines and, and water delivery systems. Um, where can we provide that nexus of, of delivering? Um, well, uh, the, the reason I ask, um, Alan, and I know it's kind of a tricky question, but I think sometimes producers aren't really even aware of what to ask. Right. You know what I mean? When they go to their producer, they, they don't even really know what kind of options are on the table. And so that's kind of what I'm, I think it's good what you're bringing up, but just you know, to give them some ideas of things to, because again, I understand your point that, you know, they, what works over here may not work over there, but I think just helping them see some of the options to even ask about as they visit with the range con, you know, is kind of where we're. Um, yeah. And, and I don't, you know, it's been a while since I've been in the field, but that might be the best question if they, if they're not asking that is, is what, what can I do? And, and maybe more importantly, come to the table with things. Sometimes, um, and, and I don't know, Brent may or may not disagree with this, but they know it's coming, right? Um, these are typically, you know, third, fourth generation ranching families. They've seen possibly a bad scenario of what's happened with public land uh, managing agencies. And they've either been told no, or there's nothing we can do. Um, and so that's sort of soured on them. And so um, they don't either go in and ask at all. Your question earlier about early engagement. And so they just don't feel the need because they figure, why bother? I've, I've asked and asked, and they just tell me there's nothing we can do. Um, maybe that's the truth. Um, and we're trying to help, you know, as, as the range uh, community to help them in, in the BLM understanding what that response means to a permittee. But if we can help them, you know, get beyond that. And so the permittee might be, well, I just need to go out. I got to go out with the ranch that I have and they're frustrated and they come in with that sort of approach. And then, you know, maybe the BLM office is, is of the nature of, well, we just can't run the raw operation as it is on the permit. And so both maybe leave a little frustrated. Um, I think if we can get over that hurdle and say, and the permittee realizes, okay, I'm not going to be able to do what I've done last year, but what options can I do? And then press the office a little bit. If they just say, well, there's nothing we can do, ask them what that means. I mean, and, and throughout some, is there no other, you know, a lot of times we look for other additional allotments. That's a tough one this year because there's no additional states that we could even call and go to. Um, I've, pulled the information to see, you know, and, and we can look at historical allotments that are are using, uh, you know, a, a lower percentage of their actual use. And yet we, we're going to retain those probably for some, you know, that's probably a more resilient landscape potentially. And, and we're, 
permittees on that allotment aren't excited to have other permittees run out there and use it. So, but we, we if they'll come in and explain maybe their operation and what they're doing, um, not that every range con is, is the perfect livestock um, husbandry background, but that at least gives them a conversation. And then if there's no solution there, they can reach up to me. And I'm here to be a conduit to reach out to folks like you and bring a group of folks together and say, okay, we, we've hit some hurdles here. Let's get a group of folks together that can weigh in and say, what are our options? What can we do within this permit or what can we do with it? And, and what are the resources I know in, in Park Valley years ago, um, we had the same sort of scenario and they came out and, and, you know, they told those guys, there was USU, um, uh, there was an economist there, I think, and there was some uh, uh, nutritionist there and they told them, you know, sell your, your hay that you're producing out on these pivots and we will build you up a molasses straw, some kind of concoction to keep your range cows alive. Um, and I thought that was a great example of, you know, multiple resources getting together to get us over the hurdle because, yeah, you know, the agency can only do so much within those permits. Um, and then we are to, well, it's either a shorter season of use, less numbers, complete non-use for a season or two. Um, but, you know, and so so if they can come in and, and get over that first hurdle of I just got to I got to go out. I don't have any other choice to, OK. I don't know what my choices are, but let's investigate what's the options. What can my permit allow me to do? What is the flexibility I have? Can I haul water? Can can we go with different numbers? And and those range cons should be able to respond to that and consult with their manager to say, here's here's the options we can do. I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier too. And you said it, you know, kind of developing that interaction, having that early interaction. But the thing I always find kind of funny about it is, you know, it really almost needs to be a business relationship because if you look at how you know some of the these cattle operations interact with different suppliers they have business relationships with you know maybe a feed supplier you know their animal health supplier and they they cultivate those relationships and they set, tend to keep updated on those you know very in depth and they you know that that is a cultivated relationship we're on the range side or the land side you know that's almost like it, it's treated a little differently for whatever reason so Maybe if that was treated more as a, a business relationship with some of these agencies and had that early and frequent interaction, really develop that relationship with their field office, the range cons, you know, maybe this would be something that they could kind of be a little bit more proactive with, you know, going forward in situations like this. Yeah, so, no, no doubt that, you know, I, I was on a plane coming home from a uh, society for range management meeting once and there was a permittee from nevada wasn't from our state um and i understand you know range cons cycle through in positions but the comment was i haven't even gone in to try to meet my range con the last three people because they just turn over and i oh, wow. and there's just not good coordination and so i just don't go in and i thought wow we, we've got to break that cycle right. if that's the case because that that's not good. And again, there are times when the response from the agency isn't what a permittee wants to hear. Um, and I encourage managers to understand, you know, after that meeting, visit with them. Because again, like I said, yes, it's within our regulations and, and authority to, to issue decisions and, and, and remove livestock for four years. But that has a huge bearing on an operator. Like I said, that's, that's, loss of a ranch or, or property or you know kids not going to school that that has a meaning 
and we need to at least appreciate that if nothing else and and understand that there are are concerns with that and so again i understand we have our stewardship um, to the public lands but if we can have that relationship then that primitive feels more comfortable to coming in and that's the goal with the outcome based right is is early and often communication and and admitting hey we tried that last time with drought and it was a cluster it didn't work out well we got to do a different plan b um and hey we tried reducing by 50 percent um and this is what happened so that number didn't mean anything we need that feedback as much as anything because we are cycling bodies more frequently than past but yeah that that relationship is the core of everything and and just uh, understanding we're probably going to agree to disagree on some points but um there are additional resources, again, just like this group, that, that we can help facilitate that conversation if, if needs be. You know, Alan, I, I think, <clears throat> you know, when we talk about even talking about drought during a drought, you know, a lot of the time for decisions have already passed for much of what we're talking about in the current drought. But as I've looked at weather data and, you know, just my experience from being around the state, it seems like you can, you can about, guarantee that one out of 10 is going to be bad and in a lot of cases it's one out of six if you look at precipitation patterns and so my point is I, I you know I think we need to help you know both the management agencies and the producers realize that this is a, a frequently reoccurring problem and the more we can address some of these issues up front rather than waiting for the ninth hour to address them it would help um, yeah and, and I think that's even more pertinent to the long-term management of that um, because I can say right now you know the reports we're getting back um, my state director has had multiple meetings with the Department of Natural Resources on this issue uh, we've met with the governor's office on this issue um, you know at, at those levels trying to make sure we're, we're we're all trying to commit this the same way but I would, you know, in every field office in this state, uh, permittees are voluntarily working with, uh, at least on the BLM side, and are taking anywhere from 25% to 100% reductions. Um, and we're not, you know, having the issue decisions on that. So that's a huge credit to the permittees, you know, doing that early recognition saying, we understand there's no feed, no water. There's there's not other options. I mean, we, we can't run out there and, and just, you know, lay down sod for them to, to graze on. Um, and, you know, as we talked about other resources that, you know, sage grouse comes to mind is we can say, great, you got to get off of public lands. But we look at, and, and Brent Tanner can speak to this very well, some of the great sage grouse habitat, and so can you, Eric, sits on the Tanner's private land. So if we force all of them onto that, and we're trying to manage for resources, what does that do? And it's a challenging conversation. There's no doubt about it. But um, yeah, a great credit to the permittees in Utah because we, you know, we, we always have our calls and there's some concern, but I, I hear every other month that, nope, we've, you know, yeah, there's a handful that are frustrated and, and, and we're working with, but the lion's share of them are, are voluntarily taking reductions and changing things up and doing things. And, and unfortunately, some of the reports are they're selling. Um, and, you know, that's that's a challenge. But uh, so so a lot of credit to them for this year. Yeah, thank, thanks a bunch, Alan. Um, we've got Kendall Nelson also with us. Kendall um, is the range lead for the Forest Service on the Fish Lake National Forest. Kendall, do you want to 
introduce yourself a little bit, tell us a little bit about your background and where you work and what you do. Yeah, sure thing, uh, Eric. I hope I'm coming through okay. Can you yep. hear me? Yep. All right, Good. perfect. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks uh, to Eric and others for uh, having me on today. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, as mentioned, as Eric mentioned, um, I'm kind of still new in my job. Been in been in the position for a little over a year. Um, I'm the the range program manager for the Fish Lake National Forest in the in the central part of the state and. Um, I've worked on the Fish Lake for uh, close to 20 years. Um, yep, got here uh, just uh, out of school um, from Logan in, uh, in the spring of 03. And uh, been working uh, as an on the ground range con uh, since then. And then last year, um, was fortunate to get to this position. But uh, maybe a little bit about myself personally. Uh, grew up down in Iron County. Um, that's where my family uh, roots are, um, multi-generational family down there uh, in Cedar City, Enoch area. Um, grew up on a sheep operation. And so uh, my family's been in the sheep business for uh, <laughs> a long, long time, ever since uh, the establishment of the Iron Mission. Um, we, go, we go back quite a ways. And so uh, that's kind of how I grew up was uh, licking lambs and uh, yeah, uh, being out on the, on the sheep herd and uh, tending the sheep herd. And uh, it, was a, it was a great way to grow up and uh, family still has the sheep herd down there. Um, they've, they've got private land, they've got forest service permits, they've got BLM permits. So um, yeah, I, I grew up, uh, yeah, on the operator side of things. And uh, so I've uh, been there and seen that and uh, Still getting earful from my dad every once in a while when he gets a little frustrated with uh, <laughs> the agency bureaucracy and <laughs> uh, range cons and managers uh, telling him telling him different things, but it's it's all good. Um, but yeah, happy to to be where I'm at. Happy to be on the Fish Lake, and uh, yeah, happy to be the new uh, range program lead here. So, Kendall, can you tell us <clears throat> on your forest in terms of when do you decide? there's a drought and it may require some additional action. What, what does that process kind of look like on, on the fish lake? Okay. <clears throat> yeah. And I, and I want to be clear um, before I, I start talking um, is that uh, I'm, I'm here talking uh, strictly uh, about the fish lake national forest and, and, and what's going on and, and kind of what we do here um, on, on the fish lake. And so I know there's uh five different national forests uh, throughout the state of Utah. And, um, you know, things are done differently on each forest and even, even on forest uh, in, in different district offices, things are done a little bit differently. And so I just wanna be clear uh, up front that uh, what I'm talking about today is, is, uh, is strictly related to the Fish Lake um, forest. And um, I, I really can't speak to, to what other forests are doing across the state, but, yeah, on the Fish Lake, um, you know, um, probably similar. Uh, I missed uh, part of Allen's, um, um, you know, answers there uh, with my uh, technology <laughs> issues going on today. But uh, yeah, probably similar uh, to that of the BLM. You know, we're obviously um, watching precipitation levels and, uh, you know, we, we track that pretty close. We've got several snowtail sites across the forest. 
that we keep an active active uh, eye on, and uh, we're watching watching those as well. Uh, soil moisture is a big deal for us, and uh, so we're we're watching soil moisture, and then we're also uh, watching the projections and the models about uh, you know what may be coming coming at us in the future. But uh, we watch those different things, and and as things. Um, yeah, dip well below below normal, and uh, yeah, precip precipitation levels uh, decrease. And um, yeah, we're we want to be on the front end of things and, and start having conversations sooner uh, than later. And uh, I, I think that's appreciated um, by the ranchers as well. Um, that if things aren't going to be business as usual uh, on their Forest Service allotments. Uh, we really try to get the word out early, um, you know, to, to start thinking about, uh, yeah, drought, drought management, drought mitigation, and, and what uh, that's going to be for their individual allotments. Yeah, and so you, about what time of year do you start looking at those decisions, or does it vary from year to year? Or is this something you address in annual operating meetings, or, you know, when does that process really begin? Yeah, um, good question. So uh, I can I can talk specifically about kind of what's going on uh, right now. I can tell you that uh, yeah, I think we we all know um, what we experienced in 2018 uh, for for this area and much of the state. You know, uh, a lot of places was the driest year on record, and then uh, we followed that up with uh, 2019. Um, and, and it was definitely a lot better, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing really above average in 2019 as well. And then, uh, yeah, just when we thought things couldn't get worse than 2018, uh, 2020 uh, came along and, and, and things did get worse. And so, um, you know, we start looking at drought really, um, you know, in the fall of the previous year. And so uh, here on the Fish Lake, we took a hard look um, at our, our range resources across the forest last fall as, as people were coming off and, um, you know, just uh, looking at the condition of the range, conditions of the water resources, soil moisture, snow tail sites, all that stuff that I mentioned earlier. And uh, we started thinking about those things um, in the fall of the previous year, um, you know, kind of thinking about what that's gonna mean for the, for the coming year. And um, then we're obviously watching, you know, snowpack and everything like that. I can tell you that uh, this year um, on the Fish Lake, we, we did send out a letter to all of our ranchers um, and that went out in January. And so uh, we kind of wanted to, again, be out in, in front of uh, any type of mitigation or any types of modifications um, on these allotments. And we really wanted to get the word out early and soon so that uh, these ranchers kind of knew um, that things might not be business as, as usual and, and they could start making decisions on their operations and really um, set themselves up for success. And so uh, we sent that letter out in, in January, just kind of putting people on notice, um, you know, uh, kind of stating the obvious a little bit, things are dry. Um, last fall when we come off, uh, yeah, things were dry and, and, uh, all of the models and the forecast shows that it's going to stay dry. So, yep, heads up for 2021. Um, it's not likely going to be uh, business as usual. And then um, 
yeah, we, we make a concerted effort to sit down um, with, with our ranchers every spring in our annual operating instruction meetings, AOI meetings. And that's really where the, I, I guess the, you know, sometimes the tougher conversations and tougher decisions are, are talked about. And uh, sometimes those decisions can be made in those AOI meetings, uh, just talking things over with ranchers. And, and I would say um, this year, the majority of the case that that happened, uh, decisions were, were made in those meetings, uh, at least for uh, the first part of the grazing season and, and what we're gonna do right out of the gate. Um, you know, other times uh, we like to have field visits and uh, range tours to where we get out on the ground and, and, and really actually see what's going on out there on these spring ranges. Um, you know, we, we look at uh, range readiness. Uh, I know that's kind of a, a hot term, maybe. Um, we, we still use it in the Forest Service. We, we uh, definitely look at the stage of plant growth and, and where it's at, look at water resources, um, all of that stuff. And, and so sometimes decisions are made, you know, out there on the ground. Uh, yesterday, uh, a poise, uh, case in point, um, was out on an allotment uh, with, the, with the operators, with the ranchers. And uh, yeah, we toured the allotment and looked at several different places and, uh, you know, tried to get a good feel for what was going on out there on their, on their range. And uh, at the end of the day, we, uh, we sit around the bed of the pickup truck and talk things over and, uh, you know, make decisions as a, as a group. We, we really try hard not to uh, make decisions uh, in a vacuum or, you know, to, to make decisions just within the walls of our Forest Service offices. These, these decisions affect uh, a lot of people and uh, the ranchers are our partners and uh, we want them to be successful. We want them out there on their ranches. We want them using their permits. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we like to have those conversations in a kind of a collaborative environment. Uh, see if we can, uh, you know, uh, you're not always going to get consensus when you get a big group, but uh, by and large, um, you know, we've been able to, to make these decisions down here this year. And uh, um, yeah, hopefully we're keeping everybody intact and setting people up to, to, to be successful this year. So Kendall, if I can go back, could you talk to us a little bit about what exactly range readiness is? What, what does that mean? How do you evaluate that? And how does it factor into your decisions? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'd be happy to talk about that. So when, when we talk about range readiness, um, yeah, uh, again, we're, we're looking at uh, precipitation levels. We're looking at soil moisture, but mainly we're looking at uh, plant growth and development. And, um, you know, uh, as far as range readiness um, in, the, in the Forest Service and here on the Fish Lake, um, we, we really try hard not to uh, have the livestock out on, out on the ranges um, during the, the critical boot stage of, uh, of plant development. Um, I, I multiple years in a row, uh, if we can help it. Um, I mean, it's, it's gonna happen, you know, a lot of our permits uh, across the Fish Lake have a, a June 1st turnout date. And so um, their spring ranges, um, these livestock are gonna be on uh, a pasture. Um, while, while most of these plants are in the, in the boot stage, but we try to, we try to rotate that around to where um, year in and year out where we're not grazing livestock, the same pasture at the same time of year. 
um, in that boot stage. And so when we talk about range readiness, that's, that's what we're looking at. We're looking for grasses, you know, that have the four or five leaves that uh, are maybe in the boot stage or, or actually, you know, maybe coming out of the boot stage a little bit um, before we, before we get the livestock um, out there. And uh, one thing that's kind of a, a bigger challenge to us, I mean, it's, you know, we can, we can figure out range readiness pretty well, go out, you know, and, uh, and saddle up or, or drive the pickups around and, and see what's going on with, uh, with uh, the grass plants out on our ranges. And, and we can, we can pretty well uh, say when it's going to be ready to turn livestock on to the spring pasture. Um, what gets a little trickier is trying to figure out when the, the second pasture is going to be ready to graze, when the third pasture is going to be ready to graze. Um, because, uh, yeah, we're on the mountains. And so, you know, uh, on, on a lot of these allotments, we may uh, start out grazing at 5,000 feet, 6,000 feet. And then uh, we, we may end up in the middle of the summer being well over 10,000 feet uh, with our grazing. And uh, so all these things factor into that as well on uh, when, it, when it comes to range readiness is that we we try not only to look at the spring pasture and uh, when it's going to be ready, but we really try hard to, to, to think about the second and third pastures as well and uh, when they're going to be ready. Because uh, as, as we all know, uh, once the cattle and the sheep are, are on the range, um, they're on the range and, uh, and, and, and they've got to be somewhere. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, giving yourself some time for, for your pastures to, to green up and get going before you get cattle and sheep on them is, is really what we're after. Well, and I think it's important. I'll just interject a little bit here, Kendall. Some of the recent plant poisonings I've seen on cattle in, in one situation was a direct result of putting cattle out too early and there wasn't enough green feed. And so they went to death camas which it doesn't take much death camps to start tipping cows over. So, you know, that, that was a direct result of kind of pushing the envelope in terms of putting cattle out a little too quick and just not having enough green forage to keep them going. So there's, there's, it's an important consideration. So what other, and Alan talked a little bit about this, but what other non-grazing considerations have to be factored into your decisions? Because as I look at range cons and, and even tell the students as they're leaving here to, and hopefully be employed by your agencies, you know, it's a real balancing act that you guys have to strike, you know, where your, your primary objective is to take care of the resource and you're trying to be accommodating to the grazers. But I, I think it's important. What are, what are the other considerations that you have to kind of keep in mind as you're considering grazing? I mean, there's several other moving parts. So from a forest service perspective, what are those other moving parts? And then how do you you kind of, what does that process of consideration look like in a drought year? <clears throat> oh, yeah, good, uh, good question, Eric. Um, you know, uh, range management uh, in, involves science and, and art. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're taught in, in Range 101. And, um, you know, when it comes to decisions like this and, and drought management mitigation, uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, yeah, you employ a lot of the art side uh, of range management, and there's uh, so many so many things to consider uh, when it get, comes to a decision. Um, but um, yeah, some of those things. I mean, for the Forest Service, you know, uh, we we manage for multiple uses, and so um, 
you know, yeah, we've got livestock grazing out there and, and, and we want grazers to be out there. We want ranchers to be out there, but we also want to match that with the, the resource and the other uses uh, that people value, um, you know, when they come down here to spend time on their national forest. And so um, that's, that's factored into the decision. Um, you know, um, sometimes uh, things that are factored in the decision is uh, cooperating with our sister agencies like the BLM and, 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 and the state DNR, um, you know, around here, we have a handful of allotments that will actually uh, be on the BLM uh, in the spring of the year before they, they come onto the forest. And so um, it's important for us to be talking and having uh, early and, and open and clear communication with, with the BLM. You know, it's like, hey, we're, we're, we're thinking that uh, these ranges are going to be, you know, a couple of weeks behind schedule this year. Uh, what are you guys seeing on your ranges? And, and so you got to have that communication back and forth uh, with the ranchers involved every step of the way, um, you know, so that you can kind of coordinate that and, and, um, and, and keep that going as, as well. And, um, you know, we, we get it from all sides. Um, you know, we, we sit down with the ranchers every spring, like we talked about, but, uh, you know, on any given day, uh, we, we hear from concerned citizens. We hear from other organizations, you know, that are uh, concerned about the, the use and the use level um, that's going on out there uh, in different areas on the forest. And so um, they want to see certain things. And, and so we, we get reports and, and, and have conversations and things like that, hearing their concerns uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, we, we have to consider. And, and then on the operator side, the rancher side, you know, the economics of, the, of, of their operations and being able to, to have them stay in business and, and to run a viable ranch, um, you know, is, is also um, something that's, that's considered and, and um, you know, we, we try hard to, to um, strike some middle ground somewhere where, where nobody's happy. You know, we, <laughs> we, we figure that if, uh, if, if nobody's happy with us, maybe, maybe we're somewhere in the middle and, and, and that's where we need to be. <laughs> but, um, you know, and so, uh, yeah, a lot of give and take. And, uh, you know, the other thing is we're looking at uh, these ranges, uh, allotment specific and every allotment's different. Um, you know, I heard Alan talk about water resources, um, but that's another one, you know, are there water resources out there on these ranges? Are we going to have to haul water, um, you know, are the permittees in a situation where they're, they're going to be able to haul water, you know, and, and be able to make that work, um, you know, and then you've got uh, other things that I know Alan talked about as well. People taking non-use for, for resource protection, people taking non-use for uh, personal convenience, you know, uh, for different reasons in their operations. Um, all of these things factor into to the decisions that are made um, that you see out there on the ground. And so a um, lot, of, lot of conversations and a lot of back and forth behind the scenes that uh, a lot of people don't know about or don't hear about. Um, all people see is uh, livestock out there on the range and and, and, you know, sometimes people think that that just happens like clockwork and it's just an automatic thing, but uh, it's, it's far from that. So this is a question that I asked uh, Alan. In terms of water hauling, is that a decision that the permittees can just make on their own as to when and where they haul water? Or is it what kind of coordination is required? Is there requirements in terms of where they can haul water to? How does 
What does that look like, Kendall? Yeah, um, you know, as far as the Forest Service is concerned, it's it's up to the individual rancher, uh, individual permit holder. Um, yeah, um, they're authorized to haul water um, in their grazing permits on the Forest Service, uh, much like the BLM. And so, um, yeah, if they can figure out a way to, to get water there, um, yeah, uh, they, they, they have the authorization to, to get water there. And uh, so, yeah, they, they kind of have the green light to, to get water out there on their ranges if, if they can do it logistically. Yeah, no, no regulations, really. So can they add additional water watering points, for example, on their own, or is that something that needs to be coordinated as well? Yeah, we've, we've had operators do that. You know, a lot of times they'll just, uh, you know, set up some troughs along the side of the road or, you know, they'll set up a trough um, by a pond that's dry, you know, stuff like that. And so, yeah, we've, we've allowed them uh, to put temporary, um, yeah, water troughs out there so that they can uh, get a water truck out there and, 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 and give their livestock a drink. But uh, yeah, um, they can't leave them out there. They, they've got to gather them back up when they're, when they're done with them. But uh, yeah, if they need to haul water um, somewhere, we, we, we allow them to, to, to put out their, you know, temporary troughs so they can um, get their critters a drink. Um, <clears throat> what type of stuff helps you out, Kendall? I mean, if you were to, to give some advice on, um, you know, how permittees may help streamline, you know, these drought management strategies, what, what, would, what would an ideal permittee look like? Yeah, um, another good question. You know what, and I take my hat off to, to our operators down here on the Fish Lake. Um, gosh, this year we've just had to have some really difficult chats. Uh, it seems like here on the Fish Lake, we're, we're kind of in the epicenter, at least it feels like it, it is uh, on this drought thing. And um, our, our ranges, you know, are, are as dry as anywhere around that I'm hearing about and seeing. Um, but uh, by and large, our, our ranchers and our operators are, uh, have been just great to work with and, and they've been flexible. So, you know, if I was to, to give some advice or, or maybe some points that help, um, I think being flexible is a, is a big key to success. You know, sometimes you, you get ranchers that are just, um, you know, they're so locked in uh, financially and uh, traditionally to, to what they're going to do with their operations that it really leaves them very few options uh, when it comes down to, to not being able to fully utilize their um, their ranges and their allotments uh, on the BLM and the, and the forest and the state for that matter. But, um, you know, it seems like if you're really just maxed out uh, on your operation and, and that's where you stay, um, you know, it really shrinks your decision space. And uh, it, it really limits the options that you have. And so having ranchers that are, that are um, willing to be flexible, uh, that are willing to uh, maybe coal heavy one fall when things are dry, um, you know, not keep as many replacement animals, um, look for private pastures, you know, that they can put their critters on for a week or two, either in the spring or in the fall, if, they, if they've got to come off early. Um, you know, having, having things like that built into their operation and, and having some options uh, out there is, is a, a big key for us, you know. Um, where it gets really tough is when somebody comes and says, 
you know, I don't have anywhere to go. I, I don't know what to do. I, you know, here's my situation. And, and, and I, you know, I, I just don't know what to do if I'm not going to be able to turn on on my on date, you know, that's going to be a, a, a huge impact, um, you know, and, and those are tough, tough conversations to have. And um, it really shrinks your decision space. Um, the other thing that I would uh, say to, to our operators and, um, we learn this all the time. It seems like that, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to have a few bells of hay left in your hate stack, uh, come springtime. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I know people got to make it work and they've got to take care of their bottom line and, uh, selling hay for a lot of our operators, at least, uh, here in central Utah, selling hay is, is a part of, of the revenue, you know, it's, it's part of, uh, of, of where they make some of their money. Um, but we've, we've had several, um, ranchers that will, uh, that will just sell all their hay, um, and just keep enough to, to, to get them through till the first of June, right down to the, the very bale of hay. Like they will feed their last bale of hay, uh, the day before their on date, um, you know, to come onto the forest and, um, you know, I, I just uh, I, I would say having having a few bells of hay left in a stack um, is is a great thing. You know, just to give yourself some flexibility and some options, uh, so that uh, if if for whatever reason you, you you don't turn out on your on date or you don't make it to your off date, uh, you you got something to to get you through. Um, you know, and uh, you know maybe that's your haystack. Hey, Kendall. Would you say that those producers that are able to be flexible, would you say that those guys are the, are, are the ones that are typically proactive about interacting with your agency and maybe proactive about planning for not business as usual, as you said earlier? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, you know, I don't know how many ranchers have stopped me or called me this winter and, and, and they've wanted to know what we're thinking, right? I mean, well, everybody around here knows the situation that we're in. I mean, we, we had lots of ranchers come off their ranges early last fall. I think, uh, we had somewhere upwards around, uh, yeah, uh, 50 allotments. That's a, that's a five and a zero, 50 allotments that did not make it to their off date last fall, just because there was not anything left out there on these ranges, you know, and, and, and they just had to come home. And uh, they were they were great about it. Like I mentioned uh, a minute ago, my hat's off to them for for doing the right thing and, and bringing their critters home. But um, I mean, they were asking us right then, you know, what are you guys thinking for next year? What are we going to do? You know, what are our options? What are you guys looking at? Are we looking at uh, you know less numbers? Are we looking at a shortened grazing season? Um, really the, the, the more progressive operators, I mean, they were, they were wanting to know in December and January, uh, what, what we were thinking and, and what we were looking at for June so that they could make the decisions in their operations and, and set themselves up for success. Like I mentioned a minute ago, you know, maybe they're not keeping heifers this year. Maybe they're not, uh, keeping replacement lambs. Maybe they're taking a little heavier coal as they run their cows through the chute uh, in the fall and, and getting them preg checked. Maybe the cows that are shortbred, um, you know, or that off cycle and they're breeding, maybe maybe they go this year, you know, just to, to give themselves the flexibility. And so, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think the, the, the more progressive operators, uh, the ones that are engaged, they're wanting to have those conversations. 
and uh, and a lot of times they're they're instigating those conversations, and and sometimes we we don't have answers for them when they when they want them, but uh, yeah, um, they're they're wanting to know sooner rather than later what they're what they're going to be looking at. Thanks. So with that, Kendall, and this is something that Alan addressed too. What kind of what's the range of options that you all consider? You know in January, when you started looking at this drought, you know, what's kind of the tools in the toolbox that are, are you know, what are you going to do? Like, how do you, how do you mitigate these drought impacts as you look at grazing? So, cause I think sometimes a lot of producers aren't even sure, you know, what to talk to the range con about in terms of options, you know? And so can you just kind of give us some broad sideboards of some options that you all consider as you're working towards, Hey, how are we going to, because the harsh reality is, is we're not going to grow as much grass as we have in the past. And especially there in your part of the state, Kendall, and you mentioned this, but coming in out of an extremely dry fall, you're already behind for the following year. So it, it's kind of a compounding effect there, you know, for, for the drought. So what, what range of options yeah. is kind of on the table for the forest service when you, as you look forward at droughts, what what's the range of options available? Yeah, yeah, another good uh, another good question, Eric. We have several options that are available to us. Um, I've I've mentioned a few of them uh, already today, and in, in, in some of my other answers. But uh, you know, we have the option for uh, ranchers to to take non-use on their permits without any penalty. And uh, you know, I, I think that's one thing that that a lot of operators maybe aren't aware of. Um, or they think that they're going to get penalized, you know, if they don't lose their permit or, 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 or it might go away, you know, or whatever, if they, if they don't use it. And so I think in the back of their mind, they're thinking, gosh, I got to use this thing, uh, you know, or else I'm going to use it. But that's really not the case. Um, you know, we have two different types of uh, non-use uh, that we can, um, we can grant or approve. And uh, the first one is uh, non-use for personal convenience. And, and that, that's the one that doesn't have anything to do with the resource. The resource could be in great shape, um, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, that permittee um, financially or, or, you know, whatever's going on with their, their herd of livestock, they decide not to, not to put any uh, critters out there on their allotment that year, and that's their decision. And so um, operators have that option, um, you know, that if it's just not gonna work for them for uh, a couple of years, three years, uh, to, to keep running their livestock out there. They can, they can take non-use for personal convenience and, and not be penalized um, in, in any way for that. And so uh, that, that option's out there. The other type of non-use is for resource protection. And uh, given, given the circumstances that we're in, uh, that we're here talking about today, um, yeah, uh, non-use for resource protection is, is being granted uh, pretty liberally. Um, here on the on the fish lake, you know anybody that's uh, feeling like they they can't or or, or you know don't want to go out there on their ranges instead of classifying that as a as a personal convenience non-use, we're able to to have the justification and the rationale um, to uh, to put that down as uh, as as somebody taking non-use for for uh, resource protection, and um, that also um, comes without penalty. Um, it doesn't have any bearing on the permit or anything like that. Permit's still just as good as it was, um, you know, if you're running full-time and full numbers. Um, it's just uh, another tool that we have 
Um, as far as the actual on the ground stuff uh, that we look at, um, you know, and one thing that we've taken a hard look at uh, down here on the Fish Lake this year is, is our spring uh, use. And, um, you know, coming off the ranges like we did last fall with uh, very little forage left out there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a plant physiology expert, but I'm, I'm pretty sure grass doesn't grow in the winter. And so um, if, if there wasn't any grass out there in October, there's probably still not any grass out there, uh, you know, in, in March or April or even May on some of these ranges. And so um, uh, having a spring deferment uh, is, is one tool that we have and, and something that we look at. Um, the other tool that we have is just, uh, you know, um, again, all this is in conjunction with our partners or ranchers. Uh, maybe some guys are down on numbers, you know, maybe they did call heavy last fall or, or maybe they decided to, to sell some, you know, the bottom end of their herd to, to buy some hay, you know, to keep them going or whatever. And so um, we're starting to see, you know, a fair amount of ranchers down here that don't even have enough uh, livestock to fill their permits uh, up to up to their full numbers. And so taking a reduction uh, in numbers uh, is, is an option for us. Um, it's something that we, we really don't like to do. Um, but sometimes if, if the ranchers are already down on numbers anyway, um, you know, sometimes, uh, um, yeah, taking that reduction in numbers is really not going to affect them a whole lot, but uh, it, it, it pays dividends out there on the range. And so uh, we, we take that as well. And then uh, the other thing is just, you know, having to, having to come home early. Uh, which was the case uh, last fall around here, where we just we've uh, we've met our utilization standards uh, in, in all the pastures across an allotment, and uh, probably uh, exceeded uh, utilization standards uh, in in some pastures in some areas. And you know, uh, there's really we we run out of options, and uh, and so uh, you know you just have to to bring the cattle off of the ranges and. And, uh, and and put them somewhere else. And so hope that answers your question. Um, no, I, I think that's good to just kind of make, you know, that's one of the questions I have to get is, uh, you know, what, what are our options? And uh, I think the hardest thing to build into an operation is flexibility. You know, Matt and Ryan and I have talked a lot about, you know, how do we help give information to producers about options for, you know, creating a more flexible livestock operation system and and it's difficult especially with cow calf operations to create a ton of flexibility because you've got animals that you know takes you 18 months to produce a calf that's that you can market you know and so there's there's a lot of investment there but um one other option eric uh you know that people may have or may want to consider that uh i, I didn't mention there for a minute is uh is changing from cow calf operations into a into a yearling operation uh we've we've had some guys that have decided to go that route around here too and just said you know what cow calf thing uh feeds too expensive cows pr calf prices are too low um we're gonna we're gonna get out of that and uh we're, we're just gonna run yearlings for a few years and uh and, and that's an option too and uh guys can do that and um they can actually run a few more yearlings on their permit than they can pairs and so uh not getting into the the details of it but uh yeah um a yearling uh equates to seven tenths uh of an aum an au and so uh 
you know, somebody decided that they, that they wanted to run urines out there, um, on their, on their cow permit instead of pears, um, you know, that, that's an option for them and that, uh, they can, they can put a few more out there too, which, uh, may, may be benefits some guys. Yeah. In, in one of our previous podcasts, we visited with a, a young producer out of Wyoming that had converted his entire ranch basically to a yearling operation. And he runs on some forest service there. He had other constraints where he kind of lost his access to some winter range and, you know, good, good options to winter cattle. And so he had, he had gone the yearling route just because it made more sense in terms of when he's four acres available. He also had some predator concerns that, yeah, he, that he, the yearlings uh, were more able to survive. Yeah, he's up in the Sunlight Valley area, so he had both grizzly bears and wolves as well. So it was, uh, and Larkspur, tall Larkspur on top of all of that. So he's certainly got some challenges, but it was also encouraging to see, you know, a young producer mm -hmm. figuring out how to make it work. And so he's been fairly successful the last few years and forging ahead. But the yearling option candle is one that I've, I've thought quite a bit about. Uh, there's some strategies that Justin Derner and others have promoted you know, they call it a flexible stocking and the way it becomes flexible is you about 60% of your herd or 70% stays as cow calf. And then the other 30, 40% floats as a, a yearling. Cause it's much easier to decide not to bring yearlings onto your ranch in the spring versus I've got a bunch of bred cows that I've got money invested in and I'm not going to get what they're worth, you know, selling them at the auction barn down the road. And so it, it's a tough place to make decisions like that, but yeah. Um, I think those options are all, all good. Um, you know, I think we've covered a lot of what we wanted to talk about today. And I, you know, the, it reminds me a lot of a lot of the other issues we talk about in terms of managing public land grazing, you know, when we, as we visit with producers and we visit with agency folks as the coordination is the, the key to all of this and thinking and, you know, kind of fleshing some of these problems out. Um, before they become an issue. I, I was involved in a situation a few years ago where I'd, a rancher had asked me to come and look at some range. And, you know, by the time we got there and I was there in like mid to late June, <laughs> but man, your, your decision space, I like that way you used the phrase decision space. There just wasn't many decisions left to make, right? In terms of and the Forest Service trying to, to be very accommodating, but you know, at that point, that late in the year, there just, it was clear that there wasn't enough forage to make this the full season. But, you know, so I think that's the one thing we're hoping to encourage people to do start thinking about some of these decisions before they're kind of in the ninth hour or, you know, they're staring this early home date, you know, coming home early and trying to figure out how they're going to do that. Cause it's, it's a tricky balance here in the Intermountain West with trying to put up hay all summer to feed them all winter kind of approach. And so, and Eric, on that, Kendall made a good point that, you know, those permittees coming off in the fall had the immediate question, what are we doing next year? And, and as the agency, I think we really hesitate in answering that question because, you know, we're hoping for the best as well. We're hoping not to have those conversations. And so, boy, if it, we, you know, if we understand if we get too premature and say, yeah, we're going to run half numbers uh, now, you know, if these operations, you know, agree or whatever, they start making plans. And then all of a sudden we get some great moisture or something where we, we go to them later and say, well, you know, it looks like you could probably do it. We, we don't want to set them up that way. So, it, you know, Kendall's right. We, we kind of, 
not that we don't have an idea, but we're, we're sometimes a little reluctant to pull that trigger that early on and say, you know, just like you, we, we'd like to wait. And so maybe the conversation with the permittees is what's the, what's the moment of decision that you need to have? Um, and again, that's like right now, I know, but what, what is the last hour that, that we can still have some decision space, but wait as long as you can. And I mean, I guess if we can figure that out, we can be in a different business, but that's, that's the challenge. We, we had, at least from the BLM, I would think we, we're not sure. We'd like to see what comes of it, but we realize if we wait till, okay, folks turning out, you know, May and it's March, um, mid-April, yeah, we're, 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 our decision space is much shorter than it was. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's, it is a tough position to be in. Yeah, it's, it's a, and there's a lot of moving parts that oftentimes the producers don't even control. I, I do think the one thing I, and this is something we need to work on on our end, but, um, and Alan addressed this, but it's really that those rains in April and May and early June that really bring our grass here in the Intermountain West. Snowpack's important, but it fills ponds, keeps springs flowing. But in terms of forage, we're really dependent upon that spring rain. And so it even makes it harder, right? Because you can't rely entirely on snowpack. Um, but, you know, if, if we're well into April and we haven't had significant rains, then I think it's fair to start, you know, that's a pretty good time to start looking at an exit strategy in terms of how you're going to handle a year with reduced forage production. But it's, it's hard because, uh, you know, you remember 50, 2000, I think it was 2015, had a really dry winter, and then we had like a five-inch May, which is incredibly odd. You know, in some cases, some parts of the state received as much in May as they normally receive in the entire year. So it looked like it was really bad drought, and then it comes out. And, and what I worry sometimes is then we look at that and think, well, that could happen again. And well, yeah, it could happen again, but it's kind of like lightning striking twice in the same spot. You know, it's not, it's not real likely. And so it's, it's a hard, it's a hard place to be. Well, Matt, Ryan, Brent, do you have any other questions for him with Kippum? We sure appreciate Alan and Kendall coming and sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us. Any parting questions for him? No, Eric. this has been fantastic. I learned a lot. Go ahead, Brent. Sorry. Eric, I, I want to thank you and your USU team for putting this on and, and uh, putting this discussion together. Uh, I think it's very helpful for us uh, to have these roundtable discussions. And, and to Kendall and Alan, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule and, and joining in. And, and like you indicated, uh, I think that it's way better that, that agencies and industries have their discussions over the hood of a pickup than by certified letter. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's just, it's just way, you know, the, the relationships that you have, have built uh, with your, with your permittees, uh, certainly uh, we appreciate in the state. We hope that a new administration doesn't upset that balance that, that you've started to create here and, and uh, hope that we can keep that in place. So thank you very much uh, in what you're doing to help our permittees. Yeah, so th this will be recorded um, and we'll make it available, Brent, so it can be shared with, you know, the rest of the Cattlemen's and others. So I'll be happy to do that. Yeah, it'll be good. Well, Kendall, Alan, thanks a bunch. Uh, we you. certainly appreciate your time uh, and willingness to come on. So we'll catch up with you later. Thanks, everybody. Thank thanks, you, guys. Take care. Yeah.
Appreciate it.